Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. G'day, I'm Sarah Wilson, and welcome to the third season of Wild. Wild ideas for living a fired-up life. When I was nine, I announced to my mum I wanted to be a nun when I grew up, or the first female Prime Minister of Australia. I figured either would allow me freedom, freedom to do good projects, and bizarre logic, I know, get out of marriage. I was actually quite obsessed with nuns, and I think I still continue to be quite obsessed. When I was 18, I went and stayed with some nuns on an island just off Venice. And interestingly, while I did a fairly obsessed deep dive into this subject while researching for this episode, I discovered that in the US, there's a scheme where millennials can group house share with nuns. Anyway, I was also obsessed, as it happens, with the death penalty. I think it started in primary school. We used to debate repeatedly what our last meal would be before we were electrocuted. It was a thing in the playground for a few months. So you'll have to forgive me for being just a little bit excited about my chat with today's guest. Sister Helen Prejean is the radical Catholic nun who wrote Dead Man Walking. In 1995, it became a film by the same name, starring Susan Sarandon as Sister Helen and Sean Penn as the inmate convicted of a gruesome double murder. Sister Helen, now 82, has spiritually guided and accompanied six people to their execution. She's currently guiding a seventh and has become the best-known campaigner against the death penalty in the US. She also has, wait for it, 65 honorary degrees and doctorates. On her Twitter bio, she describes herself as a life lover. Her nun friends describe her as a hurricane. And get this, she's got a personally curated playlist on her website, which I think she seems to update quite regularly. It's called Music That Reminds Us What We're Struggling For. And it includes Tupac, Chance the Rapper, Australian Indigenous rapper and activist Briggs, and Paul Kelly. So in this episode, I haven't singled out just the one wild idea to chat around, as I usually do on this podcast. Sister Helen's whole life is wild. You know what, uh, Sarah? I never quite ever saw myself fitting in completely to marrying somebody and having a family with a little picket fence and everything, your life seems so contained. Now, this is in the South. This is Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And most of my class, the girls in my school, 
talked about going to college, going to LSU, Louisiana State University for ho-ho husbandry. What you did was you got married, you got a husband, and what you did was you had babies, you had a family, and that's what you did. And here we had these dynamic nuns who were intellectual, they were full of faith, they were full of humor, they were alive, they were human, and they challenged the dickens out of us, taught us how to think, taught us how to argue. But their faith was real. It was connected to real life. And this is combined with a Southern thing, too, because they got some mean nun stories out there. Yeah. Nuns beating kids with rulers and stuff. This wasn't our nuns. And I went, I wanted to do that. Also, I knew the life would give me leisure, if that's a word to pursue deeply the spiritual life, and I wanted that. The other thing I wanted to be, you didn't say this out loud, but I'm going to be a saint. But I did. I I knew that there were realms of holiness in which you could learn to be in touch with God, and and you could love others, and the saints were our, our models for that, and I wanted that. Yeah, I get that. You were seeking depth, and I, I relate. It was very similar to what I was like at, at the same age. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, what were you seeking, though, at that age? What were you seeking in terms of having a spiritual life, a life of depth, a, a life of inquiry? I wanted to be, well, you see, the whole Christian ideal or the following of Christ is to be another Christ. And what does that mean? To learn to love so much that you could love enemies and to be a servant, not to lord it over others, to be a person who could be with the lowly people and be one with them. And teaching, I wanted to be a teacher because you're always learning when you're a teacher. And I, from the moment I stepped in the classroom, I loved it. Mm, yeah. It's interesting because you could have probably been a teacher without being a nun. You could have had a married life and, you know, all the standard stuff. But I suppose it's that dedication, that very singular dedication. And then what happened is, as I write about in River of Fire, when I awakened to justice, then that freedom then to move into the St. Thomas Housing Project and live among African-American people as my neighbors, who then became my teachers. It's just like my little boat caught a wave. And religious life and the sisterhood gave me the freedom to do it. In the sisterhood, you have support. First of all, you know, I grew to understand about justice because I was part of the sisterhood. And uh, I I don't know that I ever would have wakened to all that if I I hadn't been part of the sisterhood. They're always challenging you, you know. It reminds me of something I heard Jane Fonda say, that when she reached her sort of 60s, activism really stepped in as a charming way to lead a life. And she'd been an activist, of course, much of her life. But as she got older, she used the same wording. She said it was the freedom, the time and the space, freed from the hormones. It was after menopause that she really fired up, you know. And she said that, you know, for women, um, when the hormones drop off, it affords you that freedom to dedicate yourself to activism. And we'll we'll get to your activism in a moment. But I want to stay on this nun thing because as I... As I say from the outset, I'm, I'm really the fascinated Bring by on it. the nun thing. Yeah, yeah. I've been wanting to speak to a nun for a while about all of this. But when you yeah. entered, this was pre-Vatican II, so it's a very restricted era, wasn't it, in the Catholic Church. What was life yes. like for you 
it was stepping into another world. First thing is, your life was to be one of obedience. And I thought I was never going to make another decision in my life. To be holy meant to be obedient. So whatever the superior told you to do, that's what you did. You're obedient to the holy rule. And you have rules that govern everything. When you walk, you walk with what was called modesty of the eyes. Your eyes are lowered not to get distractions so that you can be prayerful and recollected. You know, the, the way you walked was nunly. I, that was a big deal. To, uh, look, to develop. What's a, what's a nunly walk? A nunly walk. walk. I'm going to tell you what a nunly walk. First of all, you got on this habit. Three and a half yards of black serge, long robes, long sleeves, three veils, under veil, top veil, long flowing. And you don't wave your arms. You kind of learn to glide. So that you walk with always with poise, with dignity, even the way you're supposed to go to sleep at night, that you're supposed to lie in your bed in a nice posture, as you would want to be if Jesus appeared to you. Well, I did some little machinations around that because I figured, however I was lying, if Jesus appeared to me, that's the way I'd be lying and I'd have to be lying in a fixed position. If I mean, but everything was regulated. Silence, which you either went interior with the silence or you went crazy or you left. Because for the most part, the day was silent. And then you had study, religious study. And I love that. Coming to the presence of God. That is still a very active thing in my life. I wake up in the morning to be present to people in a loving way like I'm in the presence of God. To be in the presence of God is to be in the presence of integrity, of truthfulness, of love, and constantly leaving ego, leaving yourself, being generous, giving of yourself. And so that's what the life was. So I entered 57, and lo and behold, boom, Vatican II, the Reform Council, hit. And nobody did it change more than nuns. It's like our selfhood was given back to us. You know, discernment and deciding where God's moving in me and listening to that and acting on it so that you got agency in your life. Yeah. Wow. It really did signify a very big change. I grew up a Catholic and I know my parents talk about that massive shift, but it hadn't occurred to me that it would make such an impact on on nuns. And I, I read in your book that there was a time when you and a bunch of um, of other nuns, I think it was uh, 13 other nuns, went to the beach for, for your vacation and you had this kind of moral quandary as to when to strip down out of your habit into your swimsuits and you had a highway to cross, I think it was. Can you tell me a bit about that? I sure can. Because the holy rule said, now this is when all the changes were beginning to happen after Vatican II, and you would make it all, all different context and everything. So the holy rule said that you were always to wear the habit in public places. Big discussion. Mother Jane, she had just been made a superior, and she was very unsure of herself, and she didn't want to do anything to incur the wrath of the higher-ups. So she, here she is with all these young people getting ready to go to the beach. And she said, well, the holy rule says, so when we cross the highway, we should have our habits on. We go in mother. 
mother, can you picture all of us wearing our habits, getting to the beach, disrobing? We going to be on the 10 o'clock news <laughs> if we just don't have our habits and just walk across in our swimsuit to go to the beach. Nobody's going to know us from a difference from a hole in the ground. That's what happened, of course. But it was a funny discussion. Yeah. Uh, you don't think through those practicalities as someone who doesn't have to wear three, was it three metres of black fabric in multiple layers to the beach? Um, now, in your book, uh, The River of Fire, you write how you fell in love and you wrote about this really openly. And it, I think it's it's a real gift. It's very generous of you to write about how you fell in love with a priest. I think you were the age yeah. of 20? 20, more, more like 26. Okay. Yeah, and you both practised celibacy but with a third-way model. Could you describe what that third way was? Here's the thing. Vatican II opened up and everybody was quoting this quote from St. Ignatius of Antioch. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. So here I was now going to school in London, Ontario, nuns and priests together, going to Notre Dame in the summer to study theology. And most of us had entered the religious life right after high school, with little experience of dating, little experience of men. And here's this guy, and he, I liked him. And so the third way meant what you would do is you would keep your vows but you would be close to each other, which meant, of course, you don't have sex. But it was called the third way. Most of the time it broke down readily, early, that nobody could do it. And with him, though, the relationship lasted seven years. I truly did love him. And I also was not at all acquainted with alcoholism and how it worked. And in the relationship, he just simply became more and more emotionally dependent on me. He was an alcoholic, is what you're saying. Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah. And he also kind of emerged that he has a controlling personality. And I realized I cannot be his God. I cannot make him happy. If he doesn't find his happiness from within himself, I can't do that for him. It was like walking into the circle of freedom and light. And then I got to the crunch point in it, sir. The crunch point was, what am I afraid of? Other people have broken up relationships before. If they don't, you know, what am I afraid of? And then I realized what it was that he had said to me, if you ever leave me, I, I won't be able to live. And I was scared he'd commit suicide. And I surfaced it and I said it and I recognized it. And then I said, I can't be his God. I can't hold him together. And I made the break. Gosh, it's just, I mean, it's a, such a familiar storyline. Either many people I know have either experienced that kind of toxic codependent type relationship, you know, with a, with a narcissist. Or they know somebody who has and they've had to counsel them through it. It's just, it really blows my mind that a nun and a priest, um, what, 50 years ago went through this together or, you know, 60 years ago went through this together. And it's it's a common storyline. It's it's a thread through humanity, isn't it? This kind of push-pull. No, truly. And, and women especially. Mm. I mean, it has given me a sensitivity 
especially to women in relationships, because there is still so much in our culture where men are dominant and women are subservient a lot of ways. If I was one minute late for a phone call, he would, you know, so it just got to be so unwieldy. But then when I made the step and did it in integrity of spirit, I was freed up in a whole new way. And I, I still take a deep breath when I think of it because it was a liberation. Yeah. You've sought freedom, but a very particular kind of committed, devoted, vigilant freedom at many turns in your life. Yes. And there's a phrase that you used um, to describe your choice at that juncture, and that was you set out or you chose to pursue single-heartedness. I'm really interested to hear you describe what that is. Yeah. Most people think of chastity as as, uh, puritanical stuff about sex, you know, and not being sexual. But single-heartedness means you have an integrity of spirit and your, your energy is cohesive to be able to pursue your heart's desire of what it is that you really want, deepest desire. Uh, and, and that had to do with serving others, being open to the call when it would come. But I also realized from the novitiate on the importance of intimacy and friendship. And so I cultivated a deep, deep friendship with Ann Barker. She's called Chris in the book. And uh, we were friends for over 30 years. And you have to cultivate friendship like a garden. You have to invest in it. You have to give yourself to it, do the ups and downs of it. But having intimacy, you can't, I, it's impossible to live fully without having some human being that knows you deeply and you know them and you can share at a deeper level. Mm. What about, and I hope you don't mind me asking this question, um, but what about what about sex? I, I think it sounds like you've got a lot of sexual, that what people get out of sex through a, a cultivating of intimacy with friends and probably with a lot of other humans as well in your work. But what about that sexual element? How's that been managed for yeah. you? Well, the sexual, all the sexual energy has to do with a desire for union, a desire for deep connection. In fact, I read a spiritual writer said, God made sex to make sure people connect with each other. It's a starting point for a lot Very of effective technique. I mean, <laughs> that, <laughs> now that we've started, oh, what is your name? <laughs> uh, but it's that, that's the deepest thing in us is that desire for connection. And it, it can happen a lot of ways. When I'm writing well, it's a connection mm. with people. When I'm before an audience, and I've spoken to huge audiences, like 6,000 people, and that feeling of intimacy with them, that just that spontaneous being able to just say exactly what I'm thinking and, and the back and forth reciprocity that I feel in them. There are a lot of different ways of intimacy. And then you got to be healthy, you know, and face up to, recognize when the sexual energy per se is there, but to recognize it. The big working word and opus operanti, of course, for celibacy is sublimation. To take that desire for physical 
intimacy, but to sublimate that. And you got to recognize it when it happens. So you would take the energy when you would feel what many humans, every human I would say, feels, a hormonal buildup, um, sensations in the body. Right. uh, That can often drive us to go and seek out sex. Exactly. And that union. As, and yeah. I love that you describe it. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's kind of an insta union, you know, like it's a fast union. Yeah. It's a it's a really good show. It's a fast union. Yeah, um, called hooking up. That's it. I mean, it's the perfect word for it. In fact, you know, even virgin is misinterpreted as a prudish, uh, shriveled up being that is not open. Virginal just means pure and of itself, not determined by others or in competition with others to try to prove yourself. Virginal just means this is me. This is who I am. And you got to discover that, you know, as you go. And a lot of people layer up their lives such that they never discover that. With sex being one technique for that, one distraction, it can be a distraction that can take you away from yourself. And you know what, Sarah, that desire and intimacy, there are two divine sparks in us, I see and they will always leave us restless, I think. Mm-hmm. One is the desire for truth. So even after we learn 4,984 truths, it's not enough. We always just are wired to seek truth. Yep. And when we can have a habit or a discipline intellectually, then it means we can really pursue truth, not just intellectually. And the other is the desire for love, which is infinite, infinite. And so it's like that desire is so deep and so fierce that sometimes we just turn to drinking or turn to drugs to feel that instant intimacy. Ecstasy is just this heightened experience of life that's possible to have in a number of different ways. So it's all connected. You explain it super, super well. And a lot of the way you explain it are teachings which our culture, we've, we've lost those teachings. We don't get those teachings, that notion of, of stepping into spaces, forums, using practices to satisfy yes. the very, very universal itch, which is to know ourselves and to learn and to access more and more truth. We're meaning-seeking machines, and yet so much of our contemporary life prevents that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
Look, I want to move on to your activism because that's the other tenant of your life that just fascinates me and I'm in awe of what you do. So when you were in your early 40s, a friend suggested you provide spiritual guidance to an inmate and become an activist for inmates who are on on death row. And I'm just wondering, you describe two types of nuns, the spiritual path nuns and the activist nuns, and you went from one to the other. And I think you've described the spiritual nuns as almost living in a cocoon-like manner. Which I did. Yeah, and activism took you out of that into a sort of a more vibrant life. Can you describe that to us all? Sarah, when I grew up in the Jim Crow days in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I lived in a big two-story house. My daddy was a successful lawyer. And Ellen and Jesse, whose last names I didn't even know, lived in the back. African-American couple lived in the servants' quarters. I never questioned it. And that was a realization, too, that culture gives us eyes to see, ears to hear, and you don't question things. So when I did wake up and I lived among African-American people who became my teachers then, it's while I was working there that one day coming out of the Adult Learning Center, I met somebody on the sidewalk right there on St. Andrews Street, New Orleans, and said, hey, Sister Helen, you want to be a pen pal to somebody on death row? I got into this thinking I was only going to be writing letters to somebody. I I hadn't even noticed that the Supreme Court had put the death penalty back in 1976. This is 1982. And I said, sure, I'll write letters. I wrote Patrick Sonier. He wrote back. I visited. And two and a half years later, I'm in that killing chamber when the state of Louisiana electrocuted him to death. And I witnessed it. And that changed me forever. Mm. There's the saying, what the eye does not see, the ear, the heart cannot feel. And people don't see executions. They're secret rituals. And I was drawn. My image of it is, it's like I tumbled down a laundry chute into this huge thing of the death penalty. Learning all along the way, all while Tim Robbins was working on a film at Dead Man Walking, he kept saying, the nun is in over her head which I was. I didn't know anything about anything. But it was the witnessing of that man being rendered defenseless, strapped down and killed. And he was guilty of a terrible crime. He and his brother in cold blood had killed two teenage kids. So I have the outrage of that in my heart. And then I have the witnessing of this in my heart. And that's, of course, what gave birth to the book of Dead Man Walking, to bring the reader through you got to do the whole journey on the death row. You got to stand in the outrage. Then you got to move over to this is what it means to entrust government to kill people who have killed people. Yeah, I think it was Seneca, wasn't it, who said, you know, if you kill me, you will not harm me as much as you harm yourselves. And it's the impact on society. And I remember that movie um, so, so vividly. As I say, I've got an obsession with nuns and the and death movies. penalty. Hey, <laughs> the hey. death penalty, yeah. <laughs> and I just, I remember thinking about what it was like for the person who gave the last meal, for the person who had to actually do the execution, for the prison guards, for right. the nurses. It, they also see it and the impact on right. the human spirit of 
proactively killing another, even if they've killed When they're others. defenseless, when you've rendered them defenseless, that's the key thing. And that was the heart of my dialogue with Pope John Paul II about church teaching. Because yeah. if it's the traditional teaching had been to defend society. And I said to him, I said, Your Holiness, when I'm walking with a man to execution and he's shackled hand and foot, surrounded by six guards, and he kind of turns to me and says to me, Sister, please pray God holds up my legs as I walk. Where is the dignity in this death? How does it, how can we claim that it defends society when we have prisons and we're deliberately making a person defenseless and then deliberately step by step killing them? I'm interested in the defenseless part. Why is that part of it really important? It's also that what makes torture torture. If two people are fighting and I beat you, but you beat me back, but if you tie me up and beat me, I mean. It's particularly cruel and it it takes our morality to another level. The essence of, and it's been defined in the UN Convention Against Torture, uh, that torture consists in extreme mental or physical assault on someone rendered defenseless. The death penalty is torture, the mental torture. All the, I've accompanied six people to execution and everyone has had the same nightmare. They're coming for me. It's my time. They're dragging me out of my cell. I'm going, no, I'm screaming. Then I wake up. It was a dream, but they're going to come for me. And you die inside your mind because we are anticipatory in our imaginations. It is the practice of torture. And it goes on for decades in most cases. Can you actually, for for those of um, us all who are listening and are not overly familiar with the situation in the US um, with the death penalty, I mean, it's the only Western nation that I understand that still has the death penalty and I I think I've got this right, around a bit over 50% of the population still support it. Yeah. Can you just also give us a little bit of a, an overview of what the current situation is in the US? Just a, a brief a brief elevator rundown. On a little elevator rundown. Yeah, that's uh, it. The fact is that it has been decreasing. That uh, statistic dips with you give an alternative. When you just ask the abstract question, believe in the death penalty, people who do murder people go, yeah, 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 and it's above 50%. Give them the alternative of a life imprisonment instead of death. Most people choose life. It's dip, it's gone down. But that's the abstract question, see, and people don't reflect on the death penalty. Give them a chance to reflect and let them know. 187 wrongfully convicted people now have been exonerated. For every eight people we've executed, one has had to be freed, one out of every eight. Just bring people there and they begin to get it. It's an unreflected opinion, and they've been made to be afraid that some people are so irredeemable and so violent we can't put them in prison because they'll kill guards or And that's not true of human beings. To demonize the human being is the first thing you do when you want to kill them, including terrorists after 9-11 and what's going on in Guantanamo. Yeah, yeah. Is it more than 1,000 executions um, have occurred this century? Over 1,500. Over 1,500. Okay. And to your knowledge, and it's a bit of it is belief, how many do you think of those were innocent? 
Well, just judging from the 187 who've been lucky enough to show that, I would say it's a fairly high percentage. I would guess as much as 10, 8 or 10 percent. And metrics really are hard to. Mm. But what you see is why are so many innocent people thrown in with the guilty? It's the way the death penalty has been set up. The way the Supreme Court put it back in the Gregg decision in 1976, they set two guidelines. One was that it's not the death penalty. Get this. Get this. Death penalties have to be given for ordinary murders, not your garden variety. Only the worst of the worst. And nobody knows what that means. No. And it's coupled with discretionary power of the prosecutor to go for death or not. So prosecutors are frail, partially seeing, ignorant, politically biased human beings. So in the the deep South, nobody's surprised. That's where 75% of executions have happened, where race plays the biggest part. Because when white people are killed, overwhelmingly, is when the death penalty is sought because you have to value the life of the person who was killed. So it's just fraught. It was doomed from the beginning. It could never have worked. Although I was surprised to learn that I think California has the most number of prisoners on death row in the country. And do you know? we think of California as progressive. Exactly. And that's pure political. The politicians that those, you know, prosecutors that went for death, no, they'll never be executed, but they see it as getting political points. And until this last presidential election, Sarah, we have not had anyone who ran for the office of president who said they were against the death penalty. Even Obama didn't do that. He had his little designer death penalty if it's really grievous and all that, but Biden did it. And Gavin Newsom, who's the governor of California, just freed all those people off a death row into the general prison, which it just proves worse to the worst. I'd mean anything. Yeah. In those moments, I mean, you've, you've, as you say, you've walked six um, prisoners to execution. I think you're currently counselling, advising, mentoring a, a seventh prisoner at the moment. What are the spiritual insights that you see are quite universal to people in this position? What point do they arrive at? You know, and we know this from the movie that, you know, based on the book that you wrote, uh, it seems to me that a lot of people do arrive at some kind of spiritual reckoning. What have you found that to be? Uh, realization and recognition that they're going to die and come into grips with that. My role with them through the whole thing, Sarah, is for them to know their dignity, that I'm there with them that they have a dignity that nobody can take from them. No matter what happens to them, they have this dignity. And I shore that up in every way that I can in accompanying them. But the thing about the death penalty is you are there waiting to die. Like Dobie Gillis-Williams, who's the first story in The Death of Innocence, he was brought in the execution chamber three times before he was killed. Two other times he got a stay of execution once, right, as he was being served his last meal, because it's a human process. When you're in the hospital dying of cancer or something, you're dying, you're fading. 
this is a human process. And so it makes the torture. I think I'm going to die. I'm pretty sure I'm going to die. I'm almost certain I'm going to die, but maybe not. And so when that, there are two red telephones in the killing chamber in Louisiana or any death chamber, one is to the governor and one is to the courts. And if that red telephone rings, even as you're being walked in, you don't die. Oh, my goodness. And so it's on these tender hooks of trying to sustain yourself between life and death and coming to grips with that. Is that for real? So right up until that last minute, they've had their final meal, you've prepared them, you've walked, they're shackled, they're walked into the room itself, and there is still a chance that that phone might ring. Oh, and it's impossible to get your mind around what's happening. You know, with Dobie, I'm thinking I was right there with him at that last meal. They just are serving him the meal. In walks the warden, kind of gets down on one knee right by him. And he said, Dobie, I don't want to put you on a roller coaster or nothing, but the Supreme Court just gave you a stay. And I remember Dobie looked up at the clock. I did too. You know, it was just minutes before he's supposed to die. What do you do with that? How do you process that? What did he do? Well, what he, did the two of you do? Well, he he right away was taken back to his cell and I, you know, had to leave him then. But I do know that by the time it came to the third time, he said, I need it to be over. I don't know that my legs can keep walking me. I don't know that they can keep. And he had an IQ of 65. I mean, once you get to these stories, it's just kills you. It's just unspeakable. You're working with Manuel Ortez at the moment, who's been on death row, I think, for three decades, close yeah. to three decades. And he's innocent. You believe he's innocent. Absolutely, he's innocent. And I could get into it with you, but it's like with prosecutors having the full discretion to seek death, and in Louisiana they have bragged about how many death penalties they got when they're running for a higher office, it's tainted and corrupted from the inside out can never be just. Yeah. It it must be very hard when you believe they're innocent. I I followed the case of of Quinton Jones, you know, heroin addict, terrible background, killed his great aunt over $30 in a a drug-induced rage, and he spent the next 22 years on death row. And he wrote to a journalist on the other side of the planet. She's a New York Times columnist. I think she was based in London at the time. She'd written about a cancer diagnosis and she received a letter from Quentin saying that her words had touched a death row convict heart. And they became friends and pen pals for many years. And she launched a campaign to get clemency. And I'd read this article and I'll include the article for anyone listening in the show notes, but it it really, really just haunted me. And I Googled where things got to um, for this, in preparing for this chat with you and my stomach dropped because he was executed in May last year. The campaign for the clemency just didn't work. Is there any difference for you in terms of looking after people in those final moments or, you know, <laughs> over decades um, between those who are innocent and those who are not? How do you grapple no, with that? No, each has an inviolable dignity. Everybody's worth more than, and I mean, when you're in the horror of seeing this, of the government, these premeditated steps to kill a human being, innocence, of course, 
makes it more outrageous of what's being done. But that essential dignity of the human person is intact for me, even those who have done crimes. You know, and then when we look at, you want to see where the discretionary power of the prosecutor comes into play. Look at what Trump and Barr did six months before Trump left office. How did it happen that 13 people were killed even several weeks into after Trump had lost the election? And the woman, Lisa Montgomery, her story, if you say the worst of the worst are the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable, she had been so abused, uh, unbelievably abused. And here her execution date was set in December. Then they pushed it to January And when they told her the date, she kind of wistfully looked away and said, eight days. Because in eight days, Biden was going to come in as president and he'd save her life. But under Trump, she dies. Discretionary power of these human beings to decide we are going to kill you. There had been a 17-year hiatus on federal executions. Trump comes in with his attorney general bar and just starts killing people freely. That's why you can never entrust death over to government authorities. You can't. It's a moral dilemma. It's a moral challenge that we as humans really, we, we lack the capacity to deal with where it leaves us. And it's, um, we struggle to deal with the prospect of death in itself, our just personal natural death. No, yeah. And to plant these kinds of ideas, quandaries onto the families, the executors, the jail wardens and everything, it's it it's criminal. That's, you know, it's one thing for the prisoner, it's another for the rest of us. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the jurors. And the jurors. Here you have an unspeakably terrible crime. Then if the defence lawyer and the mitigation specialist has done their work, you hear this story of abuse this whole person's life that exploded into violence. And you're gonna go behind closed doors and it's gonna take a unanimous vote. Does my fellow human being live or die? And then what happens to jurors in trying to handle? It's inscrutable. Nobody can handle this. We don't have the capacity. We don't. We've got to find better ways to deal with humanity that goes astray. Well, we got to start moving away from a whole thing of that you punish human beings instead of restoring life, restorative justice, not a penal system that punishes people, even with death. Can I ask you, are you scared of death, having witnessed so much of it and counselled people through through the prospect of it? Yeah, I'm, I'm scared to death of death because what's it going to be after? I mean... You know, you have faith that you have a loving God that's going to receive you. Then there's that whole rational part of you. You can be reduced to just a bunch of chemicals, and that's it. You're obliterated. You are no more. And that's your rational part. So then I'm going, like Einstein said, well, one life is enough for me. And maybe I ought to try to think more like Einstein. Let me live now. Let me really live now and to live generously and to live openly and as fully as I can. And then finally, like every other human mortal on this earth, I will turn myself over into the great unknown. So the finiteness and the preciousness 
yeah. motivates you to be even more fired up with what you've got in, within those parameters. Yeah. And, you know, accompanying so many people to death, it kind of really puts you in touch with the essence of life. Like as soon as I got involved in these really big things, boy, I don't go to any meetings that are about trivial stuff, you know, because yep. you want to concentrate on essential style. Oh, that's the same for me with the climate crisis. Uh, yeah. It's like puts Huge. everything into focus, puts everything into focus. Like I have a very firm notion of what matters and what doesn't matter and it, it's it's a relief, I've got to say. This is a really wonderful segue for me to ask you one final question, which I ask a lot of guests, not all guests on this podcast, which is a question I actually ask in my book, This One Wild and Precious Life. I ask it of myself. If we were to lose it all, if we were stripped of everything that we think defines life and what's a healthy, balanced, comfortable life, as, as per somebody on death row, all of that stripped away, what is left? What is left, do you think, for us? What do you see in the eyes of the prisoners that you speak to? What is left when they're stripped of everything? Well, because they're not stripped of consciousness. They're not stripped of moral integrity. They're not stripped of conscience. They're not stripped of the capacity to love. They're not stripped of the capacity to come to grips with their situation, embrace it, and try to make the best of it. They're not stripped of their creativity. And they're not stripped of their deep spiritual consciousness, of the connectedness with things and with people. Uh, that's the whole thing of my accompanying somebody on death row. It's just they got somebody um, in their corner. They know I'm there for them. And it's that connection. And they live up to their side of it. And they teach me. Manuel Ortiz, I call him my, my man of courage, my lion-hearted man. But also allow him to have his moments of weakness that it's really hard, that it's really, really tough. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's my oh, first shot. Many times over. It answers my question many times over. Um, Sister Helen, what would you like listeners to this podcast to do after listening to this chat? Is there anything they can do to get engaged, to be part of this? I'd like them to go to sisterhelen.org and look at the different ways to get involved. I'd like a group of them, wherever they are in the world, to read one of my books and then invite me to have a Zoom session with them to have a conversation about what they read. And they can do that through the webpage. I reckon there'll be a few people responding to that one after this conversation because uh, you make for a very entertaining book club guest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing like the death penalty. It's a hoot. Very entertaining. <laughs> Boy, I really needed that chat today. And I've got to say, I was pretty blown away that the reasons Sister Helen gave for being a nun were very similar to the, the reasons that I gave to my poor mother for becoming a nun, or at least wanting to become a nun when I was nine or ten. We both wanted freedom from the perceived constraints of being a woman. Anyway, I have a few other reflective takeaways. So always, always the importance of carving out time, space, freedom to vigilantly reflect on the vast preciousness 
our humanity. It's just so important. Now, we've not all entered the nunnery, but for me, I've got to say, this podcast, you know, the reason I get out of bed to come here and do an episode, it's all about creating this kind of space. And there's many different ways that we can do it. And I'll leave you to reflect on how you can bring that into your own life. Also, how cool are nuns? I know it's my obsession, but perhaps after this chat, you'll share the obsession with me. How wonderful that humans come in so many different flavours. And then Sister Helen's ability to talk about sex and intimacy and having a needy, narcissistic boyfriend and having to leave him behind to get on with her own life and to have her own freedom. I mean, I didn't see that one coming. and I'm sure you probably didn't either. But it really does remind me that, you know, so many of us are seeking the same thing. There's a universality to our yearning and our need for, for intimacy. I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly comforting. This chat also reminded me of the supremacy of intimacy in our lives. We need to access it in so many different ways, as many ways as we possibly can. And sex, of course, is a, is a great way to dial into it, like directly, you know, insta-intimacy. But it's not the only way. And um, yeah, Sister Helen really, I think, sold in some other ways of going about it. And just a reminder to visit Sister Helen's website, sisterhelen.org, and not just for the very radical, cool playlist that she has there. She also has instructions on how to become a pen pal to someone on death row. And I've got to say, I've signed up for that and have written my first letter. Until next time, stay wild. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.